Father God, thank you for bringing us together this evening. Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill this space. Lord, would you prepare our hearts, um, prepare our ears, allow us to see what it is that you have for each of us this evening. Lord, we thank you for this narrative of Stephen and um, the leadership that he provides and um, the way we get to see you at work throughout Israel's history. Lord, I pray that um, you would be honored and glorified in this topic and in our discussions this evening. And so we give this evening and we give our time to you and pray that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all stopped in your tracks. So last week, um, we got this little glimpse into Stephen, and um, I'm going to try really hard not to stay, say Stefan, <laughs> because you know my husband's name is Steve, and it's actually Stephen, and so when I see a PH, I want to say Stefan. <laughs> so I'm going to try really hard not to. Anyway, um, we see this glimpse of Stephen. He is chosen by his peers. So the ministry of Jesus is growing and spreading. And so it can't, the leadership of it and the teaching of it cannot be contained to the 12 disciples anymore. And now we see, we know that the, the disciples are growing and there's a bigger following. And so there's a need and the disciples come together and they ask the other disciples, Find somebody in your group. Find the leaders in your group. And that's what they did. And so we have a few of them listed here. Um, and the first one um, that we will be talking about is Stephen. Um, and then later, we'll also be talking about um, Philip. But Stephen is, I think, a remarkable um, example to be chosen by his peers as a leader, and so that is a significant part of what we will um, talk about this evening. So, I'll start reading. It's a lot of verses, and I might need to stop for water. So, we are in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8, and if you're in a blue Bible, it's on page five, um, 914. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and the Alexandrians, and those of the Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place, and, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, 
Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our, to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he, gave, he, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summons Jacob his father and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose out of Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants, so they would not, so they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He opposed he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me? As, the, as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness 
of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, who they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with your fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, to, brought, it to, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their, our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find the dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the, the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did I not make, did my, did my hand not make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of these prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. When they, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Steph, Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That was a lot of reading. So, Stephen, chosen by his um, peers as a leader, um, he's a new leader, so he's one of the first leaders that we see in Acts that is not one of the main um, characters, if you will, or the, the apostles or the disciples that we are very familiar with, so he's new. In fact, um, during our discussions today, some of, the, some of us were like, uh, where did he come from? Like, why do I not know him? Because he's kind of a big deal, Right? And the, probably because it is a small section, we read through things, there's a large section of history that sometimes we kind of come to and we're like, oh, it's the history of Israel, I know what that is, do I really have to read it? Um, but he is pretty significant, and um, we don't really know that much about him. He was Jewish, he clearly converted and um, became a disciple of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus set forth, right, and it was growing, and so they needed more, and they chose um, Stephen. He was the first of these new leaders, and um, new, but not necessarily, he's leading the way. There's going to be more that we're going to see throughout Acts, and so he's the first, and he's pretty significant and prominent, um, and so he is chosen in verse 5 um, of chapter 6. We see this. They chose, they chose Stephen. He was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then when we start in verse 8, it says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so it, it makes me wonder, the grace and power that they use to describe Stephen is an interesting combination for a leader. And in our context, I think, how do we describe the word power? When we think about power in our context, we might think about like the capacity or the ability to like influence people or make things happen or change the course of events. That might be in like how we would look at power now. And what about grace? If grace is undeserved favor, we know that Stephen has received the Holy Spirit, um, and he is full of grace. He's received the grace of God, 
And if he's full of the grace of God, is he now able to extend the grace that he has experienced? And so this idea of grace and power in a leader is something that I think is something that we need to really think about, and that's part of one of the questions in our discussion groups. It's true because Stephen was led with grace, and he was empowered. So the power that they are speaking of was him being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's significant. Stephen's leadership and ministry um, they were a clear threat to these Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders, we have to remember, they were fighting to preserve what they knew and was taught and brought down generation after generation after generation. And they're holding on trying to preserve what they think is true. They're also trying to preserve the power and the authority that they have with the Jews as well. And so he's a threat to them. He's giving a different narrative. He's sharing the gospel, this freedom that comes with Jesus Christ. And we'll see soon that Stephen will join this line of leaders that God rises up and are rejected. And so we see these people in the synagogue. They're disputing his teaching, right? They don't like it. It's not what they want to hear. And it's interesting in verse 10, it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And interestingly, I think this is an interesting detail and significant because if you go back to chapter 21 of Luke, um, and specifically in verse 14, this is what he said. This is what Jesus said when he was describing and preparing the disciples for what they were going to face the persecution, the war, um, the destruction of the temple. This is what he says. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to mediate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you the mouth and the wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is what we're going to see coming ahead. Stephen's accusers They cannot contradict what he is teaching because it's true. But what they do is they twist it. They take what he is saying and they turn it into Jesus is going to destroy the temple and he's going to change the law that Moses has given us, which is true in a sense because Jesus replaces the temple. There's no need for the temple anymore. And he doesn't destroy the law, he fulfills it. So you see what they did, they took it and they just kind of twisted it and misrepresented it. And we see that, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to do, right? You hear something, you don't necessarily like what it, what it sounds like or what the message is, and so we might just take a little snippet and pull it out of context. I think it was on Sunday, maybe, or maybe the Sunday before, John stood up here and he's like, I'm going to say something and I do not want you to misquote me, right? Because if, ta- if what he said was taken out of context, it means something different. But in the complete um, context of his sermon, 
it says it communicates what he wanted it to. And so I think that's something we think about. Like, you know, on social media, when you get these little sound bites, like, I think we need to ask, what is the context in which that came out of? I think we need to be cautious about that. I think we also see this happen um, with biblical text when we do what is called proof texting. We'll take something out of scripture, a verse or two or a section, and we'll use it to defend a position that we want defended um, or that we like, and then um, we disregard the context in which that scripture, that particular verse or section is in. And we also um, need to be very careful, and I appreciate um, Eric in choosing to do these large pieces of scripture at a time on Wednesdays. It's hard. I mean, it's a lot. But the value in it is the context of the entire biblical narrative matters a lot in how some of these things fit in there. And so this is what these accusers did. They took what Stephen was teaching and they took it out of context. And so they secretly instigated and they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes. And last week, Eric was talking about the, you know, getting this like little division started. And that's what is happening here. And then they put him on trial. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, it should sound real familiar. Because it's a very similar narrative, if not the same narrative, to Jesus. Yeah, what Jesus experienced. So they took their um, case to the council, and this fascinates me, and it shows the state of these leaders. They go to the council, and they make their case for blasphemy. And as they're doing this, the council is gazing at Stephen, and while they're looking at them, they see his face like the face of an angel. Now, what is the context of an angel for them? What do we know about angels? What did they know about angels? They were messengers from who? Okay, so here, he's on trial. This is what we're accusing him of, Supreme Court. And the people sitting on the bench, the council, are looking at him, and they see the face of an angel, whether it's like this glow or whatever. And yet they still proceed on. And they ask him, is this true? And so Stephen, he's got a brilliant rebuttal, a defense, and it seems like he's on his own for this defense. But remember what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 14 of Luke. Did I say chapter 14? Yep. Um, he would give them the words so that their accusers would not be able to contradict what, he, what they are saying. And so his defense is quite lovely, actually. And we talked about this. Like, there's a lot of defenses that we see, or um, not defenses, excuse me, a lot of um, sections of history that are shared um, in the New Testament, and some of them are like lineage, but this feels different. There's a little bit of a, a different um, 
intent to it. It doesn't feel like it has a terribly sharp edge to it. Remember that they described him as being full of grace. It feels like what he's doing is gracious, but right to the point. So he answers the charges against him, and what he's doing is he is pulling out the significant events of Israel's history, where there are these leaders that God has, has risen up and empowered, and they reject them. And they also, he's also bringing up instances where they misrepresented or they misunderstood what God was trying to do or wanted done. And so it feels like he's taking them on this like trip down memory lane. And it's significant. These people and these things are significant. Um, and it seems like these things should open up their eyes, right? Because they're true. They can't, they can't deny them. They're true. And you'd think that this, lin- this lineage and this history would open up their eyes like, like a clue. Like, oh, oh, wait, we missed that? Oh, wait a second. But clearly that's not what happened. And in his, in his speech, they call it a speech or a sermon in some cases. In it, he uses the word our. He says our fathers seven times. So he's not trying to like say it's me against you or it's us against you. He's recognizing that they share a history. They share ancestors. Um, and And he's saying, our. And he's also giving them this balcony view, I think. You know, sometimes you can't really see the forest between the trees. Like, it just kind of gets muddled. And so it feels like in his speech and and what what he's representing, like, pulls these leaders up onto a balcony to kind of look down at the history of Israel and get a different perspective, and like maybe that will help them to see the big picture of what is going on. So these significant people and points in Israel's history. Abraham, God chose him as the father of great nations, the father of Isaac, who fathered Jacob, and then the 12 patriarchs. He made a promise, and God kept his promise. And then we have Joseph, the son of Jacob. He was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, but he was empowered by God while he was in Egypt, and he became a leader in Egypt and had the favor of Pharaoh. But through the activity of God and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he was able to actually save his brothers from famine. And so he reconciled that, And even though he was rejected by his family, he fed them when there was a famine. And then we have Moses, which is the bulk of his speech. And it's ironic that they are charging him with blasphemous words against Moses because the truth of their history actually shows that their fathers disobeyed Moses and they rejected his leadership And they turned from him and made idols to worship and said. And so there's this history. This is what our fathers did. And and you're accusing me of blasphemy of Moses. And then we have David and Solomon. 
they built a temple as a permanent dwelling for God. Now this was, he also talks in there about um, the tabernacle, which was given to be a mobile, right, when they're wandering. And then that goes into this temple and this idea that there can be a permanent residence for God to dwell in. And it seems like that would be an appropriate um, culmination of the promises that God had made. But then Stephen quoted Isaiah 66 when he um, emphasizes that God created everything, everything with his own hands. How could he possibly be contained in one space? And so we see this argument or this um, appeal you can't keep God in this temple and just for you. Because what we're going to see moving ahead is this widespread mission, this wide, this, the faith spreading wide, and it's going to places beyond Jerusalem. And it's going to reach people who are not Jews. So this idea that God is not to be contained in one spot, he's not to be contained for one group of people. God is transcendent, meaning he's in all places. And he still is. Stephen's speech up to this point um, points out that the people also, the people changed, right? God was not empowering the same people all the time, he empowered different people and unlikely people, and he empowered people in different places. It wasn't in a, loca- in a specific location. It wasn't just in Jerusalem. And so Stephen's speech is trying to point these things out, like it's not just about you. God rises up unexpected leaders, and how are you missing it? If God is empowering leaders or God is working through the Spirit, how are you missing what he's doing? The thing that didn't change, like the people changed, right? Leadership changed, there's different examples, it's in different spots, but God never changed, and he, and he followed through with all of his promises. And so that is what his history lesson is meant to do. And I admit, like, when I started preparing for this, I got to this, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, for real. Like, all of that's history, Israel's history. I can just skim through that. And I did the first time, and then I was like, yeah, that actually feels wrong. (laughs) And when you go back, um, there's a lot of detail in there, and there's so much more that can be pulled out of there um, in his speech and in his history. History is significant, and history is significant to us. We need to know where we came from. We need to know what was experienced. It gives us significance. It's like when we, um, we celebrate and remember. God tells us to remember. And so we see these celebrations and these festivals throughout Scripture. Like we celebrate Christmas to remember what? Christ's birth. We celebrate Ash Wednesday to do what? Begin the, prepare us, begin the Lent season, 
And we celebrate Easter. Well, let's back up. We celebrate Monday, Thursday. I don't know if it's a celebration, but we acknowledge and we annually um, have a pretty um, significant Monday, Thursday experience here. For what reason? The betrayal of Jesus to remember what he went through. And then Easter. We celebrate Easter because we're celebrating his resurrection and the hope of his, rex- of his resurrection. So again, this history matters because it's significant. God has asked us to remember. So then now, okay, now we get to um, verse 51. He's gone through his history. He's made his points. He's trying to, you know, make this little trail of breadcrumbs, like connecting the dots for them, and they're not getting it. And then (laughs) he, um, I don't know if he comes unglued, but he's pretty harsh with his, he's not pulling any punches. Like, can you imagine, like, me or Eric or John having a conversation with you in one of our offices or standing up here and like, you stiff-necked people. Like, you're so stubborn. Why is it so hard for you to get this? You don't see how the Holy Spirit is working. And what's interesting is in 51, he actually says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Why? Why is it easy to resist or ignore or not see the Holy Spirit? Well, I think the the temple is tangible. These laws are tangible. They're measurable. They give a certain sense of security, right? Like, you go to the temple, you know God is there, you know what's going to happen, you know the sacrifice, you know the result, and so that feels good because we know that we're doing the right thing. There's an element of control there. But the Holy Spirit messes that up. I'm in a class right now. I have two left, this one and one more. And my class right now is the Theologies of the Holy Spirit. I love it. And the very first week um, in my professor's lecture, he said, the Holy Spirit is real dangerous, guys, because the Holy Spirit is not necessarily predictable and going to do what we think he ought to do or act the way we want And so he said, the Holy Spirit is real dangerous for church leaders who want things to sit in this nice little box with our, you know, practices and our traditions. And I'm not saying those are wrong, but I think that we have to be cautious about what we're doing and why we're doing them. Does it give this false sense of security? Um, In Garfield's commentary, he said uh, this, this text should cause us to re-examine the institutions um, we regard. uh, And he goes on to say, do these things offer people a false security? Does it allow people to get away with ritual repentance, not 
uh, that never affects the heart or how they live? Has it become a source of pride, fostering the belief that the people have a monopoly on God? Is it something that separates us from others and bestows special status only on the elite? If the gospel is to reach the ends of the earth, sacred cows that hinder God's often surprising purposes must be cast aside. And so, yeah, I mean, the Holy Spirit, they said, Jesus said, it was coming, and it was going to empower sons and daughters, unexpected people, doing unexpected things, like standing behind a pulpit, teaching and preaching. <laughs> like what? My, da my dad's not here, but he's like, I still can't believe that you are doing this. Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. So yeah, I think the Holy Spirit is a threat to the order and the tradition um, that they um, felt, had security in, and I think that is the same and something that we need to consider for ourselves. And what are the things that we really dig our heels into like that, that we can't reconsider? And I, I have talked about it before I know, this idea of a posture of humility, being open to the idea that we might not have everything right, and we might not, we actually don't, or we shouldn't, have all of the answers because there certainly is this mystery in our, in our faith. And so then we move on. Um, his speech does not save his life. And there's a lot of parallels to what Jesus experienced again. So there's these bogus charges. There's false witnesses. He's taken outside of the city and Stephen, who is full of the Spirit, knowing that his death is imminent, had this vision of Jesus at the right hand of God. So being full of the Spirit, so close to understanding and having the affection of God and the feelings and the emotion of God, he looks up and he literally has this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he trusts that he is there for him. He's with him. He's not alone. And as he's being stoned, like Jesus, calling out, he sa Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he also asked Jesus to not hold this sin against them, as Jesus did. Stephen is a bold and confident leader. And I don't know of any leader in real life that is that bold and confident. And so that boldness and that confidence had to have come from the Holy Spirit. The empowerment that he has to speak the way he speaks, interact with people, and then face this death. He was, they were warned. Jesus said this was going to happen, and he was the first martyr. 
that we are learning about. So this sets the stage, as it says, for the continued persecution of the church in Jerusalem. And it's interesting because Luke identifies Saul in this um, when um, Stephen is being stoned. He identifies Saul as this young man who's witnessing this. And then in chapter 8, he brings him back, and there's this little teaser about Saul. He approved of this execution. He is a persecutor of the church. And in in verse 3, at the end, it says, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul doesn't like followers of Jesus. And he's going to make sure that they do not spread the gospel, that they're not out there. He's going to put them in prison. And so, no spoiler alert, but then all of a sudden we go to Philip, and then in chapter 9 we get back to Saul. And so there's, this, there's significance in this, and there's significance in why Saul is attached to Stephen's um, narrative. And so that will be coming So what do we gather from Stephen's narrative, the significance of it? It shows what Jesus said was going to happen is happening. And it also is proving that what Jesus said that he would do is also happening. God has empowered Stephen He's got beautiful words. This defense, this attempt to get the leaders to understand the error and what they're missing in their history, that, like the connections that they're not making, that they should be making. And so he's one of the first that isn't a major I don't like saying character of the Bible, but a major figure in the Bible. He's not John. He's not, you know, Matthew. He's not Luke. And there'll be more after him. And so we will see more leaders, unexpected, in unexpected places, God empowering unexpected people. And so that's the significance of Stephen's narrative. That's the significance of being empowered by the Spirit. Are we ready? In your discussion groups, um, there are, I do want to um, preface um, the, um, at the bottom of your questions, the disciplines, uh, or the practice, practice, thank you. Um, it's a little teaser to Ash Wednesday, and um, it's a practice of dwelling in the Word. And so what, what I invite you to do is um, read through this text, but before you do, pray, inviting the Holy Spirit to highlight or show you a word or phrase of significance as you're reading it, and then setting aside some time to be quiet and still, five minutes, whatever, 
And then asking God to reveal to you what it is that he wants you to consider, what he wants you to see or understand. I think that this is a practice. The intent of me choosing this practice is to um, introduce this way of being in communion with God and experiencing the Holy Spirit. Because I think if we don't experience the Holy Spirit, then it's really hard to talk about the Spirit and really understand um, how the Spirit moves in us, through us, around us, around other people, through other people. And so um, I encourage you to participate in that on your own. If you want to share what you experience, I'm more than happy. I would love to have a conversation with you about what you experience in that practice. So I hope that your discussion groups will be enlightening and helpful to you. We'll come back at four minutes to, three minutes to. What's the norm? Six minutes to. <laughs> Do I hear an eight?